0: You're listening to a DM podcast.
1: And I shine the torch and I'm looking for this snake. He's like, it's on my hand. There's a snake coming in and it's wrapped itself probably three or four times around his left arm. And I'm going, oh, wow. And it's still coming in and it's starting to constrict. And I'm like, where's its head? He's like, it's eating me.
0: And the Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? He... That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
1: My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Rajri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal Land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First People's Land and always well-being.
0: For those of us living along the highly populated eastern seaboard of Australia, we're so used to the change of seasons and the colder months of the year that it's hard to imagine living in a place where the climate allows you to live in a corrugated iron house with no windows or doors, and where the frogs and cockroaches and birds and snakes can come and go as they please. Wolverton Station is on Cape York Peninsula. In fact, it's past Cooktown and it's only about six hours away from the tip of the Cape, which is the most northern part of Australia. Emma Jackson was born and bred in England, a highly populated and cool, damp country. So living at Wolverton Station is a huge contrast. Wolverton is also a long way away from any hospital, so if things go wrong, Emma has to know what to do and how to manage things while help is on the way. Hello, Emma. Hi, Lana. So how did you end up in far north Queensland? So I came to Australia about 22 years ago
1: as a backpacker, Um, travelled around... The country and then i was in cairns and i saw a small advert to go north so long story short ended up um, working in a roadhouse the archer roadhouse that um was owned by my husband so cheryl owned the archer yeah the jackson family um worked closely with cheryl to build the archer roadhouse and yeah met neville
0: and the rest is history ah so Neville's long-term, many generations uh, family living out there at Wolverton, is that right?
1: Yeah, so Neville's dad um, established Wolverton Station back in 1967 um, with another gentleman and then had four children and the two boys, so Neville and Kevin, then became partners, I guess, late teens, early 20s with their father. So Bill, Neville and Kevin are partners in the property Billy's still going. He's 93, living in the Tablelands and um, Kevin also lives on Wolverton Station. That's Neville's brother.
0: Right. Can you describe the landscape at Wolverton Station? How big is it and what does it look like?
1: Yeah, so Wolverton Station is, it's very central Cape York Peninsula. Um, Really lucky. We don't have saltwater crocs. We're a little too far inland, um, and my husband raves that we haven't got any and he's never seen any. Um, the landscape, we've got, we've got hills, we've got some mountains, we've got ridges, we've got valleys. It's, it's green for six, seven months of the year, and then it goes brown <laughs> for the remaining few months. Um, it's about 300 square mile of country. We've got the beautiful Arch River running right through the middle of our property, which has, you know, lagoons and water, coming off it. we've got lots of places to swim. We're a cattle station, so there's lots of dams and fencing, and we've got about three thousand cows so we have bram and cattle that we breed and we sell the males keep the females to breed with the females. Our driveway is um about three kilometers long so the main the main peninsula developmental road is what runs up through Cape York um and yeah our driveway is three k so. 3K in and then you've got the homestead.
0: Wow. And, and could you describe your house and and uh, what it looks like and how what size it is?
1: Yeah, so our home was built by Neville's dad um, back in the 60s and a few local fellas um, and it's made out of stringy bark and corrugated iron. So John Williamson wrote a song about the house. He came here in 2002 and wrote a song called Granny's Little Gunya and at that point Neville's mum and dad were here it was just before I came on the scene, and he loved the, the way it was built, the design of it. So there's no glass windows or, or louver windows. It's, it's very open. Where the sink is, I can, I can throw scraps to the dogs out the, out the window there because there's, there's nothing in its place. The door isn't really a door. It's more of a, a little bit of corrugated iron. <laughs> um, so it's very, very open. Um, do I like it? Yeah, it lets the breeze in. The way Bill designed it is is just fantastic. It keeps it cool, cooler during those months of October, November, December when it can get up to 40 degrees. And obviously there's no air con, um, so you're sticking with a fan, circulating hot air. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful little home. Are there mosquitoes? Yeah. Again, I was just saying to someone the other day, where Bill chose to build this home is – it's, we've got Charlotte Creek not too far away from us and the creek can flood, but it doesn't flood up towards the home, you know, the house. Um, we're in a bit of a valley, so we get a really nice breeze. So you can drive to Weeper and it'll be 34 degrees by the time you get to Weeper. And here it'll be 24 degrees down in the valley, just in this, in this little valley. I call it a valley. Um, it's, it's, it's cooler. Um, yeah, we get a few mosquitoes, a few sandflies, but it's not, not, extensive maybe one in your ear when you wake up in the morning but it's not bad
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay how far away is the closest city then would that be or township would that be weeper
1: so weeper is two hours and um cairns is our major town so i have two children in cairns um, one who goes to boarding school there and one who's just finished boarding school
0: and Cairns is about an eight hour drive. Right so being so far from the city or from any t- sort of township how do you deal with simple things like groceries and supplies and that sort of thing? So we do grow some
1: um, produce and obviously we have chickens that lay eggs we've got pigs um, we occasionally get goats and we have lots of cows so we sort of do all right for our protein and we can go catch fish Um but, yeah, we stock up through Weeper, um stock up. We also have a mail plane. So every Tuesday we have Skytrans deliver our mail and I can fax an order, email an order down on a Monday and um, have fresh produce delivered round to Skytrans on the Tuesday morning. So it's packed that Tuesday morning and then brought to me by lunchtime. So for $20 um,
0: plus the cost of the groceries, it's, it's, it's a bargain,
1: absolute bargain.
0: Oh, wow. Wow, and we thought that... Coles and woolly on wine online were, were pretty good. <laughs> they don't come through the mail delivery system. That's great. So um, could you describe, Emma, what a regular day is like for you? Um, do you start with the clock or do you start with the sunrise? And that's an
1: interesting one because every day is completely different. Every day is so different. So we have a dry season, a wet season. So I guess I'll start with seasons only because then it's easier to picture Um, I guess the content of the day. So our wet season usually kicks off around December, maybe some storms, October, November, but really work changes in December. The markets close, the road closes, you can't get your cattle to sale, um, you don't employ anybody. So December through to Easter usually, you get rain, you have rain, lots of rain. (laughs) Um, And then through the dry season, which is usually just after Easter through to October, Um, You go hard, you start mustering your cattle and the purpose of mustering is to get the the younger cattle off, to spray them and vaccinate them, you know, check them out. So we bring all the cattle in, I guess, through May, June, um, send some to market to start bringing some money in and, and do that as well as, you know, you're repairing fences or building new fences, you're opening up the roads, grading the roads, doing your fire breaks. So that all kicks off. So a typical day in a wet season is very difficult different to a dry season I homeschool two children so I have one in year 12 one in year three so my personal day is usually starting yeah when the sun wakes you up and um, doing a little bit of exercise and then um, getting the kids motivated and then doing whatever else has fallen on my lap yeah work stuff or uh, I volunteer for a few different things and, and have a few other different roles so usually something falls on my lap for that and then husband comes home so you help him with whatever he needs or you drop everything and go help and get a few cows or you go down the yard and then you go back to school and clean and cook and relax and go to bed.
0: <laughs> Sounds idyllic, to be honest.
1: It is. And in the wet season, we do a lot of swimming. <clears throat> so either in the morning or the afternoon, we go for a swim. The wet season also, we, we go for picnics. We go down the Archer River and we watch the sunset over the beautiful river, um, have a glass of wine, you know, just eat some cheese and bickies and just enjoy the peace and quiet of, of the wet season of this time of year.
0: Now, that region is not always for the faint of heart, Emma. I mean, you're making it sound absolutely idyllic, but I understand in 2019 your property was subject to Cyclone Penny I looked it up on Wikipedia, actually, and the cyclone path seems to go within spitting distance of your station. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and we had Cyclone Monica as well. Um, That was nearly 17 years ago. So that was my first cyclone, I think, Cyclone Monica. Um, So we've had Cyclone Trevor. So we've had a few cyclones um, come through while I've been here over the years. The one in 2019, I think we'd had a fair bit of rain. And the problem we have when we have a cyclone is so we have rain, rain, rain. And then the ground gets so saturated that then the cyclone predominantly brings wind, which then just uproots the trees and vegetation. So everything just falls over um, because the ground's oh. so wet. So yeah, the damage to the fences. So you can imagine twenty, thirty k of a fence line with a cyclone going over it. The trees just go dink. They literally just fall out of the ground. So right, yeah. Some of the yeah, the <laughs> the rising creeks was was quite. Huge from that one and the wind. The, again coming back to the house that Bill built, um, doesn't move, it doesn't budge, it's completely cyclone resistant. I might not have any windows. A bit of rain comes in, <laughs> but it doesn't doesn't shake.
0: And do you end up with a lot of disruption in the house with the wind and so forth coming in? And I don't know, because if I have a big storm here, I live on a property, a rural property, and I get some big storms that come over from time to time, and I can always safely button up my house and sort of say, "Okay, great. Well, this can just pass, and then I can open up again once it's gone." But you don't have that privilege or that capacity. No, you just mop up the puddles and
1: wash everything and dry everything, and and just you just suck it up and roll with it. <laughs> you just hope that you. Oh, you just hope it goes somewhere that. You might not get wet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's a fair bit of, you know, the attitude that, you know, don't sweat the small stuff is what it sounds like from what you're talking about. It's yeah, not, it's it, not worth the stress.
1: It's it's really nice. A bit of wind, a bit of rain, knocks things down, you can clean everything up if you get there.
0: Now, Wolverton is visited by so many people as they head to the northernmost tip of Australia. Um, and you have quite a few lovely facilities and and host a number of people and help them as they're travelling. Could you describe what those are?
1: Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, um, me and my daughter set up a glamping because we, we've we got some spots on the station where we go, this is just glorious, we're so lucky. And then we thought, well, why don't we open this up a little bit to, to local people more than anything um, to come and really enjoy that just exclusive, having exclusive access to the beautiful water, the beautiful location um, with no other tourists, no other people around. Um, So we set up a Glamping um, Wild Wishes, which is just gorgeous. It's lovely. And we get a few people coming in, staying um, for the night. We get a lot of people, surprisingly a fair few people, just popping in, wanting to see a cattle station on their trip north. Um, We have a motorbike tour go through our property. We have two motorbike tours go through um, to to avoid the Peninsula Developmental Road and all the main traffic. So they come through just north of the Archer River Roadhouse. And um, I think a fair bit of their trip about, say, 30, 40 K of their main road trip is through our property, which just gives them a different experience. Um, And a lot of them are from New South Mm. Wales, Victoria.
0: What do those people that are travelling through the region, what do they love about it the most?
1: I think it's mind-blowing for them. Um, I think the terrain, the vegetation, like the hills, it can change. So we have friends come out and we do little adventures sometimes and it's really great to show non-country folk what, what it's like out here. And you can go for a 10K ride and the vegetation can just keep changing. The 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 type of grasses, plants, it all just changes. Um, Mm. And I think if you're riding through the property or even walking through the property, you can just see the changes in in wildlife, in birds, in in vegetation, and it's it's quite exquisite.
0: Mm. Now there's a lovely couple, Karen and Peter, who visit you regularly and are dear friends. Can you tell me a little bit about them?
1: yeah so Aaron and Peter um Peter's neville's second cousin um they've been friends for quite a long time and come up here. They used to come up oh, a few times a year and they've got well grown up mature um adult children, so they'd come up with their adult boys um and go chasing a few pigs um obviously we've got wild pigs wild dogs, and so they quite enjoy chasing wild pigs um and just camping um they've got a business in Cairns, so they've all got businesses in Cairns that just life gets busy. So they come up a few times a year. Mm. So yeah, Karen and Peter <laughs> came up, um, actually just after Christmas, 2021, the two of them just to get out of Cairns, go off grid, bring the little, they a little caravan. Um, and Karen had a full blown heart attack. So they were not even a kilometer away from my little humpy and they had, yeah, she, she,
0: she, just collapsed at the motorbike. So you were at home at the time and I understand that you heard the motorbike at about 8 o'clock. Did you know immediately when you heard that motorbike at night time that something could be wrong?
1: Well, it was funny. So it was December. Um, So, again, coming back to December, season, you know, it had been a bit rainy. It had rained that evening so you sort of snuggled up in your nightie having a glass of red wine. and The children were playing cards with uh, my husband, Neville, We'd heard them come back from an ad- we'd heard them come back from an adventure around five or six o'clock, and where they were camping like I say it was less than a kilometer away, so you could hear their movements and then we'd heard them go uh around six thirty and we never heard them come back and we were actually because when you're on the property, you can hear everything you know what's going on, and we hadn't heard them come back and then we heard this motorbike just after eight o'clock and it started to come and it started to speed up and Neville and I were like "Uh oh something's happened and he thought something must have happened to one of their dogs because it's quite common when people come visiting and they have dogs and they chase pigs that a dog gets hurt so they come in a bit quicker and then he started Mm. beeping the horn and that's when it was "Uh oh oh no this is serious something's happened and he came onto my grass at the back of the house and pulled up right at the back door um and Karen was unconscious on the back of the motorbike just lay on the back back of the motorbike with her eyes open um just looking lifeless
0: what did he say what did he do oh, i just i
1: just grabbed the defib the defibrillator um it was a no-brainer as soon as he pulled up and you saw her it was just think quick, get the defib and he said get the, defib, get the defib got the defib opened it up pulled shirt up put it on her, and just just started and then said to ryan to ring um triple o um said to just to get me, this is you know, just threw the orders around. Said to one child to take my eight-year-old into the lounge room, and yeah, everyone just got into action. Told Neville to get the torch, so just threw the orders around, and everyone went to work. And um, the DFib, it took three shots to get a faint heartbeat, and then I just started, just yeah, just started CPR. So Pete did the blowing into Karen's mouth side of it, and I did the um, compressions. But because it had rained and we were using the defib, I didn't want to put her on the ground, on the wet ground. Um, Mm. So it was just carrying on the compressions on the back of the motorbike. Um, And then once that heartbeat just felt a bit stronger, it was, okay, let's put a towel down on the floor and let's move Karen onto the floor and, and keep on going. So because it had rained, because it was December, the ambulance had a really slow wet trip from Cohen, Mm. So I think the ambulance took 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 a good hour. So yeah, CPR. I think we did it for probably about an hour and a half all up. Karen, it was interesting watching Karen be completely lifeless, eyes open, unconscious. To you could feel the circulation increasing. You could feel the organs um, almost coming back to life. You could see, you could feel Karen's body responding. And it was quite incredible, really incredible. Like, not once did her face lose circulation, so kept poking in the face. Um, but she'd start to squirm or or she'd move a hand or then she'd groan. Um, and then it was just reassuring her that, you know, this is only temporary because the three shocks would have really been creating a bit of pain. So, yeah, just... Carried on, carried on,
0: carried on. I have to ask: Had you already been trained in how to do CPR and and use a defibrillator? Like, is this the first time that you've actually had to do this, or yeah. on a on a real person?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was scary as hell. Um, even when I picked up the defib, I thought, "Oh God, please work, please just you know." You hope that I've got the skill and the knowledge to you know make this happen, and hopefully it all. Just, yeah, works. Wow. The defibrillators were given to us through RFDS, um, and RFDS came up with the defib and provided some training. So it was fantastic. So they came up, they provided the training and um, have supported us with the defib. RFDS also give us a medical chest um, where we have all the essential medications that we could need in emergency or everyday use. So RFDS are always on the end of the phone. And, yeah, the training with the DFib was obviously really good <laughs> because it worked. Had we not had the DFib, Karen mm. wouldn't be here. It's that simple. They, um, When she was flown out, they said at ICU she had no chance of survival. And they brought all the family in to say their farewells because they classed it as a widowmaker's heart attack. And they say with a widowmaker heart attack, you've got 12% chance of survival, and that's if you're in town and the ambulance gets to you rapidly. So the fact that Karen was here with all the elements against her, um, with, you know, basic CPR and a back garden on a motorbike and a defib in the rain, and then Neville had to drive the ambulance. It was that touch and go with Karen. Um, the two ner- the ambulance officer and the nurse continued to work on Karen in the back of the ambulance while Neville drove the ambulance to Cohen to, the, um, to meet the RFDS
0: plane. Wow. Wow. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-MAX utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings, And the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. So how, how were your kids and, and Neville and Peter, how were they coping with this because you, it definitely sounds like you went into sergeant mode and <laughs> you were making sure everybody knew what they needed to do, where they needed to be. Did they respond well to this real crisis that was happening right there, uh, you know, outside your home?
1: Yeah, and that was also what was incredible is, um, you know, I take my heart off to all of them for their leadership but no one none of them ever questioned me. None of them ever questioned, does mum know what she's doing? Are you doing the right thing? None of them. Even Peter was so good. Uh he, he basically did everything I asked. All of them did. And we worked really well together as a team because obviously Pete was so vulnerable. And it would have been scary as, mm. as heck for him. It was it was just awful. But none of them questioned them or me. and um, and it was it was really beautiful, Lana. We just Worked well as a team. Everyone stepped up and everyone went into drive mode. Yeah, it was good.
0: So Neville drove the ambulance with the the staff in the back keeping Karen Ara alive and then they got her to meet the RFDS. Did you get to hear from Neville? I presume you didn't go. You stayed at the station, is that right? No, of course I went. I wasn't going to stay at the station. (laughs) (laughs) I was not okay.
1: staying here. No way. So what happened was Karen was through the CPR process. She was coming back to life. She was really coming back to life. So then she was fighting me. She vomited. She was she was fighting, and she was putting up one hell of a fight. Like it was um, really just groaning, but her hands and fists were fighting. And now I was really worried about brain damage. Um, that was my only concern. I didn't in any way, shape or form think she was going to die. I was just worried about that starve, you know, the oxygen starvation and how long it had been between her collapsing and then coming to me. Um, But yeah, ambulance came and because she was fighting, that was their struggle was to care for her in the ambulance while she was groaning and, and fighting it was um and also the ambulance guys were talking to um the ambulance and the nurse sorry we talking to rfds so rfds were being fantastic now what we did find out was that there was a plane up at bamaga so there was a lady up at bamaga who'd been waiting to be flown south but because of the weather again it all comes down to the weather um she'd been up there for a while and RFDS weren't able to get up there sooner. So this one evening, RFDS were able to go to Bamaga and fly the lady south. However, it changed and the plane came down to Cohen to pick up Karen. Um, so Neville drove the ambulance and, and myself and Pete followed the ambulance. And when we got to Cohen, the plane was just coming in and the yeah doctor and nurse set up a a, a fantastic setup on the airstrip. And basically put basically put Karen in a coma on the airstrip so we all worked together every one of us chipped in and helped in some way whether it was removing Karen's jewelry or doing this or helping pass this so we all worked as a team under the thousands and thousands of fly ants because again that that time of year when you've got your first bit of rain all the fly ants and the insects come out
0: and um yeah off they went and flew her to Cairns were you kept updated by Peter on her condition and, and when was when was the next time that you learnt of of how she was progressing?
1: Yeah, so I obviously left the children here. Um I mean, Ryan was seventeen, so the children are, you know, three of them are teenagers. Um and got back here about two, three in the morning and then Peter rang me at must have been about six or seven and said, Oh yeah, no, they don't think she's going to survive. I said, Nah, nah, that's not true. She will. I said, in no way, shape or form did she die. She did not die. I said, and I'm not accepting that she won't survive. I said, nah, Pete, hold out hold out, hope, mate, because she will survive. It's just whether or not there's there's that. It's what damage has been done from yeah. the ordeal. So they brought everyone in to say goodbye and they were adamant that she wouldn't make it. I think it was Saturday and I was so sore. I was so sore um and tired and just emotionally, mentally, physically drained. I was exhausted. Um, and also quite emotional. That next day was was just a bit of a, a whack. And then later that night, on the, the next morning, I think it was, they were like, yeah, no, her organs are doing all right. Uh, she, she's looking all right. And they took her for a CT scan and they were like, oh, she, she's, yeah, she's doing okay. And then she came out of intensive care and she was talking. So I was like, oh, I'm going. So because Karen's, so she had all the personal stuff here. And it was yeah you know as a female waking up after that ordeal without your your knickknacks it's like nah I'm going down I'm taking yeah. Karen her her essential stuff and I'm I'm going to see her I want to see her for myself and so I drove down and then when I got to Mariba, rang Peter and he said oh, do you want to say hello to her and I was like what she can talk and so yeah in forty eight hours she she was conscious Um, so it was quite incredible her recovery was remarkable and it's not been an easy road for Karen and it still isn't an easy road for Karen. She's still recovering. Um, and, and I think the stress and the trauma will, I don't know. I can't talk on behalf of Karen, but I question whether Karen and Pete would ever recover from that. It was just such an ordeal for them both.
0: Yeah, Mm. it's heavy. But, gosh, she's a a fighter though, isn't she? Holy moly. I mean, that's... She really is a fighter. And we've met a lot of the doctors and nurses and ICU staff
1: over the last sort of year who've either been through here, been here or seen Karen or attending Conquer the Corrugations walk that we organise. And um, they've all said what a true, what an absolute true fighter she is. And she fought. She fought. She wasn't dying and, and she fought and so did Peter. They both fought together.
0: What did you say, Emma, when you saw her and you got to go and talk to her that day? Oh, it
1: was it was incredible. It was um, really remarkable and, and so, so good. It was just so good to give her a cuddle and give her some love and um, I guess help her, just help her and reassure her that it's all okay because mm. she had no memory. Um, poor Karen was yeah, I think she also had a few crack ribs from the CPR um, <laughs> and she was just sore. She was sore she was yeah recovering but yeah. it was beautiful. just it just shows you I think though if you've got a little bit of training, you've got some tools, it doesn't matter where you are if you've got like RFDS and ambulance
0: and the tools and the training you can you can you can really save someone's life. Well, it really is so true because you're in such a remote part of Australia that to be able to pull off this amazing miracle with Karen and have her still alive today shows how that little bit of training and the use of a defibrillator can just change the course of life. It's uh, quite remarkable. Thank you. And yes, it has
1: it changed my attitude? Probably. I've always believed that you know, with a bit of fight and a bit of perseverance, you can achieve anything. But Karen fought so hard hmm. that night, and we all did our bit. But without Karen's fight and and sheer determination, it, it's it's really Karen who's the hero. Karen fought to be here.
0: Yeah. Now I understand that that's not the only emergency you've had to respond to. I, uh, could you tell me about your son Ryan being bitten repeatedly by a three-meter scrub python?
1: Yeah, so I think that was about oh, four or five years ago. He was, I think, he was thirteen, fourteen, and this is—I do laugh at this story. Like this, the story about Karen isn't isn't funny. It's a wonderful, beautiful story of of tragedy and and a, a brilliant outcome from tragedy. The story of Ryan. I chuckled because I was asleep and all I could hear was Ryan going, mom, mom, mom. And I thought, oh, what's going on? So I get my little torch and "Well, what's up? And he's like, snake. And I think, oh yeah, we're all okay with snakes. You can lie in bed and a snake will go across your beam above your head. And you go, oh yeah, it's a python. He was laying in bed and I went in and he's like, there's a snake. It's eating me. <laughs> and I'm like, eating you? <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. And I shine the torch and I'm, Looking for this snake, he's like, It's on my hand. And he's lay there on his back with his left arm up against the wall. So just sort of up. And there's the window, obviously with no glass or louvers. So this sort of rectangular gap in the wall. There's a snake coming in and it's wrapped itself probably three or four times around his left arm. And I'm going, Oh, wow. And it's still coming in and it's starting to constrict. And I'm like, Where's its head? He's like, it's eating me! And then I shine the torch on the top of Ryan's hand, and here's this scrub python head sort of over the top of Ryan's hand, just <gasps> opening up its jaw to move down Ryan's hand, to take Ryan's hand into its body.
0: Oh, that's horrible! Uh-
1: <laughs> but it was really incredible. I mean, it's horrible, but I was like, Wow! And then I shouted Neville, and Neville came, and we're going, what do you do? Because we, you try to take the snake off Ryan's arm, and the more we tried to, I guess, pull the snake off, the more it would move down Ryan's arm. And then the more we battled with its mouth, the more it would constrict Ryan's arm. And we're going, oh, my God, and it's still coming in. And, um, and with a snake, the teeth angle backwards, so you can't just lift it up because the teeth and they've got hundreds of teeth. And the teeth, yeah, they angle backwards. So it was like, what do we do? Because we couldn't we couldn't kill the snake. It was just like, oh. So there was a um a Commonwealth Bank platypus money box. So all my kids have got accounts with Commonwealth Bank. And when they opened an account, they got a platypus money box. So sitting next to Ryan's bed was this money box. And the shape of the platypus beak was perfect to just sort of wedge. So I grabbed the platypus and said to Neville Ratto, "You lift the top of the jo- no, you lift the bottom of the jaw and I'll wedge this in the top of the jaw and we'll pull the snake's head sort of forward and hook it out." So yeah, wedged it in under the top of the snake's yeah, the top part of the snake's mouth while Nev sort of angled down the bottom of the jaw and we got the mouth off and then yeah, took it on un- took it off Ryan. Then Nev took the snake and, um, and then I took Ryan straight to the sink, cleaned all the wounds on his hand, and then we um, we actually strapped him because although we were sure it was a scrub python, you know, we thought better to be safe than sorry. We better do a proper snake, um, a snake bite bandage. Um, we rang RFDS who also agreed that, yep, snake bite bandage is the way to go just in case we're wrong and it's not a scrub python. But also RFDS were keen to fly Ryan out just um, – to be on the safe side and also make sure that there were no teeth in there, no, no toxins, no poisons. Yeah. So because Ryan was okay, he was a little bit traumatised. We went up to Weeper and then, um, yeah, thanks to RFDS, he got flown down to Cairns and, you know, got tested
0: and checked over and, yeah, was then free to go. I reckon Ryan's got to be one of the few kids on this planet that can say, I was eaten by a snake.
1: I <laughs> know oh, it's lucky he's such a chilled out he's such a chilled out lad like he's such a good lad that it it could have traumatized him for life, just going to bed worrying about a snake, so we did actually put some chicken mash up on that window after this <laughs> so no, no snake coming. <laughs> What was funny was um two years ago, it was about a year later he came back from boarding school for the holidays and he got into bed and there was another scrub python in his bedroom and he's like, Mom and I'm like, Oh you're kidding. It was and it was it was just funny. It's like what what are the chances? And like my husband says, never in you know, fifty odd years has a snake ever come in to try to eat any of them. However, I did have a um I think Trixie Bell was about two, two or three at this time. I was grateful that the snake chose Ryan over Trixie because Trixie was such a dainty little girl that if the snake had gone for Trixie, it would have it, it could have killed her. Like, yeah. it could have done some really damage. So, it's a little funny, um, but it's also really serious that this actually happens up here, and it's really scary.
0: Well, you know, when I think about the perspective of somebody that lives overseas and all they ever hear about Australia is our deadly snakes and our deadly spiders and our deadly jellyfish and our deadly crocodiles, and then you hear a story like this, and, I mean, that even blows my mind. You know, I can't conceive of, of a snake coming into me while I'm sleeping and starting to eat me. Um, so that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a whole new level, Emma. <laughs> it's a whole new level.
1: The other day, um, Trixie Bell, my year, year three, she can't wait to go to boarding school and she's really excited and she started Googling boarding school and like I say, she's only eight and she was so chuffed because she started Googling boarding school and under the images, there was an image of Ryan because <laughs> the title was boarding school student gets attacked by a snake. So there's Ryan with a, yeah, full of <laughs> snake bites. It got. It went international. It went even hit like Europe, UK, Ireland. Like it was. It was all over the media. It was shocking.
0: Yeah, because it's such an amazing, unique, and strange, baffling story that you just couldn't make it up. I think if somebody tried to make up a movie on it, they would say, "Oh, it's just it's unreasonable. It would never happen." But here it is. It has happened. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. And there there was a lot of that um, because obviously it went crazy and there were a lot of social media comments going, Now that's not true. That didn't happen. Well, it kind of did. It kind of did. I've got to be really honest though, Lana, when it did and I looked at it, I was like, this would make such a good photo, like to (laughs) capture the snake's head over the top of the hand whilst it's constricting, whilst it's still coming in, was absolutely mind-blowing. I obviously didn't take a photo because
0: it was just cruel, but it was mind-blowing. It's something I've never ever seen before. Wow. Now, Emma, you founded an initiative that aims to raise awareness for mental health and suicide prevention. Could you tell me about that initiative? Yeah,
1: so I think it was nine years ago, um, my nephew, so Kevin is my husband's brother. So Kevin's son, Dylan, um, fourth child, um, took his life. So he was, I think he was 20. And yeah, he took his life, which was really, really, really sad um, and devastating for the whole of the Jackson family. Um, And Dylan's friends and, and friends of Debbie and Kevin. You know, it just it just shook that broader community. And then if so a few of us came together and we came up with this initiative called Conquer the Corrugations, which is a walk for mental health awareness. It was a walk, 42K over two days. It was a lot of work, a lot of hassle and um, well worth it. And it was really just to raise awareness of mental health, to honor loved ones lost, support those affected, come together as one and talk about it and try to remove the stigma around mental health, help suicide prevention. And it's evolved into an event that is really tight, um, close-knit group of people who organize it. There are a few of us who, who work really well together. So there's a couple of us who work behind the scenes sort of all year doing stuff that needs to be done. And then there's people who are more at the front facing, who help out over the weekend and Planning and organizing, like leading up to it. So there's different people who have different roles. Does it work? Yes, it works. Um I think Conquer the Corrugation is saving lives. It's helping people understand why talking is so important and that we all go through different times of ups and downs. And that's exactly what we've tried to do with Conquer the Corrugation is create an event that's tough, that mirrors. your your challenges and your good times in life that you've got good times but you've also got harder times and and that is life Mm. Um, and it's about perseverance it's about support it's about openness and it's about talking RFDS have been a supporter since day one and now we have clinicians who come along on the walk and walk with the walkers do like help help your mate yarn and and different sort of provide I guess they provide different tools and strategies for people Um, which is is just fantastic. And I think the connections that the RFDS workers have created through Conquer the Corrugations are just invaluable, invaluable for RFDS but also more invaluable for the people and and the broader
0: community of Cape York Peninsula. How many people are involved in the event on an annual basis at this point? I guess it averages 200 um, and there's probably
1: maybe a quarter to a third who who generally come back but what we find is people don't do the walk every single year not generally what they might do they'll do it one year not do it for a year or two then do it again so we're seeing a bit of a pattern we're also seeing like last year 2022 we had a group of victorians come they'd lost somebody and we find that conquer the corrugation is a really safe inclusive place so if you've lost someone or you've thought about Ending your own life—it's—it's it's one of those places that you can come and you will you know—you can just be you. Um, so we had Victorians come because they had, they'd suffered a loss, and they took a lot away. Um, the whole event is free; you, you don't pay for any of it. You, you, your camping is free. Nearly all your food provided for the whole weekend is free, um, and we have prizes and awards. That, but again, come at no cost. So we're fully able to do that because of organization and businesses supporting us
0: mm.
1: and because of volunteers, which is fantastic. So the Victorians went away and they actually rang me about um, two months ago saying, hey, we want to pull a Conquer the Corrugations together in Victoria. So it's like, okay, let's do it. So they're very much leading the Conquer the Corrugations in Victoria and it'll take place at the end of May, 27th, 28th of May down at Winchelsea. Wow. Out from Geelong. And so Shelley and I are supporting them with <clears throat> the backroom stuff. So we've created a page on our website. We're helping them with registrations and some media. We're just doing some of the, I guess, the stuff that we do for for Conquer, our Conquer. Yeah. And what we've done is we've modified the logo. So we've taken Cape York off the Conquer the Corrugations logo and um, off the website So or reduced it on the website so that if anyone wants to do a Conquer the Corrugations, as long as – the essence and integrity of the event mirrors the essence and integrity of Conquer the Corrugations, then let's let's do it. Let's try to roll Conquer the Corrugations out more more across the whole nation.
0: Oh, that's such an amazing initiative. If somebody wants to get involved or wants to get more information, what should they do? We have a Facebook page and a website, so
1: conquerthecorrugations.com.au, which is updated and it's got the information for this year's walk, which is the 30th of September, 1st of October, Um, Shelley and I, um, so Shelley Radloff and myself, we monitor the emails, monitor the Facebook page. So we're quite active on those, but yeah, so there's information online
0: that's easy to find. Such amazing work that you do, Emma. When you left England, did you ever imagine that this would be your life today?
1: Nope. (laughs) No, but I, I love it. I love that, um, I, I think we live in a fantastic country. I've traveled a lot of this world. Um, of this planet. And I think Australia is, is certainly one of the best places to live. The freedom and the opportunity we have in this country is is not like anywhere else I've ever been or experienced. I went back to England earlier this year, and it was such a shock going back to that country and, and just how different it is, how diverse it is to, to this place. It's, mm-hmm. it's just such an opposite.
0: Do you have any advice for people who are travelling around or in Australia uh, visiting remote locations such as Wolverton?
1: Yeah, um, make sure you go bush. You know, I, I think we can all see the more commercial places, see the cities and the towns, but go remote, go out back, go bush, go off the grid and don't be afraid to just pop into a place and say good Um, mm-hmm. Don't be afraid of, of dangers because dangers probably won't kill you. You know, just, yeah, go and see, go and explore and um, just get off the
0: grid. Yeah, and so be, we'll be prepared. Take a defibrillator with you. Uh, <laughs>
1: uh, you know, honestly, Lana, don't joke. I honestly suggest if, if you're that bit older or in any way, shape, or form worried about your health, then it doesn't cost much for a defib. I, um, I reckon – if, yeah, in another 10 years, I'd always have one in the car, like a satellite phone. Would you go off the grid without a satellite phone or without access to communications? Probably not. Yeah. So take a deep kit, take a first aid kit, and make sure. I, I'm i a big fan of first aid training, though. If you don't know what to do in an emergency, you're stuffed. Get some basic yeah. training. Even if you've got to watch some videos, do a course, get some basic training, you do need to know what to do with a snake. You do need to understand your snakes you do need to be conscious and cautious around water holes um and out bush but with a bit of basic training a bit of common sense um and a sat phone a
0: defib you'll be right (laughs) i would love to learn more about the work that you do with aboriginal children would you be able to tell me about that
1: yeah so um so I've got a psychology degree, qualified teacher, health and fitness instructor, and did my equine assisted learning practitioner course to bring it all together so I could work more with local people. Um, so in 2021, I um, delivered a program that Rio Tinto funded. So I worked with every teenage girl in Napernum, Um and they came out here each for three days. And it was using a horse as a co-facilitator to help the girls understand sort of who they are, understand boundaries, build their self-awareness, understand the difference between discomfort and fear and just really build them up um, and and give them an opportunity to get to know their strengths um, and how amazing they were. Um, I've been doing some work with PCYC as well, a, a similar program using equine assisted learning and also doing a program with RFDS, a holistic social emotional wellbeing program for adults. So that's really exciting. That's fabulous.
0: I'm coming to visit you. I am so coming to visit you. I did an interview about a month ago, and I decided I'm going to Andamooka in remote South Australia. I am so de- I have so decided I'm going to Andamooka, and now I'm coming to Wolverton Station. You, <laughs> you won't be able to keep me away. It is magic. It, it really is. You're an inspirational woman, Emma. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Lana. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolin. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Izuzu Ute Australia. Izuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Izuzu Ute online.